welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod. There are many benefits to wind energy, but what about its impacts on wildlife? In today's episode, we engage the experts, Brooke Marcus Wahlberg, a partner at Nossaman LLP, and Joy Page, Director of the Renewable Energy and Wildlife Team at the Defenders of Wildlife. Brooke Marcus Wahlberg is a partner at Nossaman's Austin, Texas office. Brooke has been focused on federal and state natural resource issues, particularly wildlife issues, for most of her career. Her work spans across several industries, including wind and solar energy, electric transmission and distribution, water infrastructure, and timber management throughout the United States. Brooke frequently speaks on federal natural resource issues before national audiences, including the American Wind Energy Association's annual environmental and siting conference. She co-chairs CLE International's annual Migratory Bird Treaty Act and Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act conference. And since 2018, Brooke has served on the planning committee of the University of Texas Renewable Energy Law Conference. She regularly guest lectures at the University of Texas at Austin School of Law on federal wildlife risk and renewable energy development. Joining Brooke is Joy Page, who is the director of the Defender of Wildlife's Renewable Energy Team, where she focuses on facilitating wildlife coexistence with wind and solar development. Joy, who has both scientific and legal expertise, works with federal and state agencies, developers, and academic scientists on effective regulations, policies, and strategies to advance renewable energy development responsibly for wildlife at the pace and scale needed to mitigate climate change. Prior to joining Defenders, Joy was an attorney on the Environment and Energy Law Team at Godfrey & Kahn SC, where she advised clients on a diverse range of complex environmental regulatory, permitting, and transactional due diligence. Prior to legal practice, Joy worked as an environmental scientist for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency Office of Pesticide Programs. On this podcast, Brooke and Joy will discuss their work at the nexus of wind energy development and wildlife conservation. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you, Dominic and Ayala. We're happy to be here. Yes, absolutely. Thanks for this opportunity for Brooke and I to chat about these important issues. So before we jump into what I'm sure is going to be a really great conversation between you two, I'd just like to have each of you introduce yourselves um, and tell um, our listeners a bit about how you both know each other. Sure thing. I'll start. Um, As Dominic said, my name is Brooke Marcus Wahlberg. I'm a partner at Nossman LLP, and I'm here in Austin, Texas. Uh, My day-to-day is, as Dominic described, I assist clients with compliance and permitting under federal natural resource laws, particularly the federal wildlife laws. And uh, a lot, if not most, of my clients tend to be renewable energy clients, though I do do this type of work for all sorts of industries. And I guess something that... um, It's funny here is that when I went to law school, I never planned to be an environmental law. And my background, I'm actually a philosophy major, but by virtue of this area of law, I've I've got a crash course in biology and environmental sciences. Thanks, Brooke. Um, Hi, everyone. I'm Joy Page. I'm the Director of Renewable Energy Policy at Defenders of Wildlife. And my day-to-day is pretty variable. It's all under the context at advancing responsible renewable energy development at the pace and scale we need. Uh, But how that that looks on the ground can be quite variable day to day, whether I'm working with federal agencies, state agencies, or stakeholders. 
Um, but it's all for that single purpose of wildlife responsible renewable energy. Um, and and something about me uh, on the same theme as Brooke, um, I I always knew that I was going to work um, in this field of environment of environmental science. In fact, it's actually in my high school yearbook. Um, but I never thought that I would do it from the wildlife context. I always thought I would do it through the human lens. Um, so it's been fascinating how I've ended up at this intersection. And a little bit of background on how Joy and I know each other. Um, you know, there's the wind wildlife world is a fairly small one. So it tends to be a small circle of folks that know each other fairly well. And so over the years, we continuously ran into each other at the same conferences and meetings and, and various events that are related to wind and wildlife interaction. Um, but last week, when Joy and I were talking about this, she reminded me that we truly bonded over having the same elephant print shirt. So again, bringing us together through wildlife, but that was our bonding moment. And and what Brooke is not mentioning is um, our, our Stitch Fix connection. And uh, Brooke is fortunate to work in an office um, where Stitch Fix is located. So uh, we also bonded over that. It's true, we do share a floor with Stitch Fix. All right, so I guess with that, let's talk a little bit more about our work um, at the intersection of wind and wildlife. I know whenever I tell folks that I spend a lot of my time working on these, it, it brings up a lot of questions. And so Joy, I'm sure you get the same. So um, let me start with you. I guess we talked a little bit about how you didn't expect to find yourself in the wildlife space, and now your career focuses on wind energy and wildlife. How did you get there in your career? Yeah, thanks, Brooke. Uh, yeah, I did get in my current position at a roundabout way. Um, I did indeed start my career focused on human health, on, the, on wildlife, and uh, I thought I was going to be a scientist, uh, not a lawyer, uh, turned DC Beltway policy wonk. Uh, but I did get my master's in science at a school of public health, uh, studying how environmental chemicals and pollution affect humans. Um, and after that, uh, I did just that and worked at EPA in the Office of Pesticide Programs um, while deciding to go to law school at night. Uh, and then moved on to private practice, focusing on environmental due diligence and transactional work. Um, and like so many lawyers, after uh, several years doing that, I was ready for a change. Uh, and I had my daughter, who was one at the time, and having her um, climate change really became acutely personal and emotional for me. And I didn't feel like I could be a bystander anymore, particularly with my um, my background. Uh, and so I'd worked for government and the private sector, and I was ready to try out the NGO world. Uh, so I took a job at Defenders of Wildlife focused on climate mitigation and the uh, wildlife intersection. And I've been doing it now for uh, seven years. It's the longest I think I've, I've stayed in any of those roles. Um, but what about you, Brooke? I didn't uh, realize you were a philosophy major. How did you end up here? Sure, also roundabout, perhaps even more roundabout. Um, I was at George Washington University for law school, um, planning to do international law and focusing a lot on international human rights. But, um, some sometime during the course of law school decided that I wanted to live down in Austin, Texas. So I moved down there doing environmental um, environmental and land use type work, more traditional environmental and land use associated with real estate transactions and mergers and acquisitions and whatnot. And about 2008, I moved over to a team that focused exclusively on federal wildlife and clean water act. 
And it also happened that in 2008, the recession hit, but energy development was still going strong, particularly wind. Um, and that was an upswing and those wildlife issues were really starting to come to the forefront of wind energy development. So I fell into the industry in this particular niche of environmental law all around 2008. And honestly, I'm thankful for that because it was a great place for a young woman lawyer um, to start, I guess, learning learning my craft, so to speak, because um, particularly in the environment, the environmental and development arena of wind energy development, I think it tends to have more young women in decision-making roles. And so that was a great place to find myself in my late 20s, fresh out of law school in the middle of a recession. So moving on, um, you know, we keep talking about wildlife law, federal natural resources law. What exactly are we talking about when we are talking about those statutes? What are the statutes that drive a lot of your work and, you know, maybe even beyond those statutes, Joy? Um, yeah, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting place to work because um, when you work on wind energy and wildlife, you have to constantly remind yourself that wind energy is a really interesting and unique type of large infrastructure development. Um, so typically when we think of large development, say a large residential development, we think about the impacts that relate to habitat destruction over a contiguous area. And wind energy is a lot different. Um, with wind facilities, these newer facilities, the turbines are often relatively spaced out. Um, and those turbine pads are, are actually relatively small when you think about the ground disturbance. Uh, and any ground disturbance related to a wind facility actually has more to do with the access roads than the uh, turbine pads themselves. But even when you aggregate those access roads with the turbines, if you look across the total wind area, you drew a big circle around all of the turbines, um, those road disturbances and pad disturbances really account for less than 10% of the total area. And it's, it's usually far less. And as we move to bigger turbines, we need less turbines to get the same energy output. So we're, we're seeing less and less disturbance on a total um, area for a wind project in general. And so the unique footprint of wind really creates a lot of great opportunities. It's, a, it's able to coexist with cornfields like where I grew up back in the Midwest. Um, it's a great opportunity for these uh, rural communities and an economic engine. Uh, so our focus in a lot of instances naturally shifts upward to those spinning blades, which is also a unique part of wind development. And we know that we have seen identified direct mortality to our wildlife that flies. Uh, and we see some bird and bat collisions. And these collisions, this direct mortality, um, trigger some statutes you probably didn't cover in law school. I know I didn't, uh, like the Migratory Bird Treaty Act and the Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act, and of course, the Endangered Species Act, um, where the focus a lot of times under the Endangered Species Act has been um, to our endangered and threatened bats. Um, and that's not to say we don't have concerns for terrestrial species. Uh, there's just a lot more uncertainty about the extent and nature of those impacts. And it's usually sublethal impacts um, and not the direct impacts we see from, from the avian context. Um, so that's where a lot of just naturally based on that context we focus. We do obviously um, have an intersection with the National Environmental Policy Act when there's a federal nexus or permitting. Um, as well, I do some public land work. So this um, 
we see some work under Flipma as well. Um, so that's where I spend most of my time. Uh, Brooke, is, I imagine your legal practice focuses in similar areas. Yeah, that's right. It really is Endangered Species Act, Migratory Bird Treaty Act, Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act, National Environmental Policy Act, and Clean Water Act, and sometimes the National Historic Preservation Act. And just to second what Joy said, wind energy development is unique in that in terms of um, traditional energy development and that its footprint really isn't that big. So the impacts that it has to natural resources tends to be fairly constrained. For instance, you don't find a lot of individual permits under the Clean Water Act. Um, with wind energy development, it's usually a nationwide permit exercise or something where there's smaller, more minimal impacts. Um, and while you do have some considerations for species habitat and terrestrial species like you do in traditional development that implicates the Endangered Species Act, in the wind energy environment, you are looking a lot of times in the air to see what's happening to species that are migrating through a project area. So I guess moving on from there, Joy, um, you know, again, when I tell people I work on wind energy and wildlife, even if I tell them the statutes that I'm working on, I still usually get a quizzical look, and that doesn't really tell folks what my day-to-day -day is. Um, for example, a lot of my day-to-day -day is spent assisting developers and understanding risks and which statutes may apply and determining what the permitting compliance strategy is for a particular project to maintain compliance. And sometimes those are multi-year permit processes. Sometimes it's a matter of micrositing turbines so that they avoid certain sensitive areas. It just depends. You know, other times um, I'm assisting buyers and investors that are evaluating wind energy facilities to see what that federal natural resources risk is for a particular project before they choose to purchase or invest it. You know, other times we're looking at new listings and how a project may be impacted by a species that perhaps wasn't listed when it went under construction, but now that it's been operating for 10 years, may have a listed species coming within the project footprint. But other times it's just tweaks the laws and guidance and rules and understanding how implementation of those updated regulations may affect day-to-day -day operations as well, and then responding to those various rulemakings and whatnot. And so I say all that because, again, we're in this strange wind and wildlife niche, the two of us, but I think my day-to-day -day is fairly different than your day-to-day. -day. And so I thought it would be interesting to hear, you know, now. We just heard a little bit about what my day-to-day -day looks like, what yours looks like, because I suspect it looks fairly different. Uh, it absolutely does. Uh, and listening to you talk uh, makes me miss my firm life a little bit. Uh, I miss that that focused work when you're really driving in on a project or you're driving in on a deal or a certain permit. It really creates this narrow objective um, where my work is now much broader more nuanced and really focused much more on people and relationships and communication and psychology. So I wish I would have picked up a few more degrees on my on my way here, um, but we do the best we can. Um, and I bring that up because admittedly, there can be a tension point for someone um, at a conservation organization engaging on this wind-wildlife uh, nexus. Um, again, I'm a little unusual in my field where I came to wildlife conservation later, um, but most of my colleagues, they've really spent their whole career protecting wildlife. And based on their experience working with other industries, they can be suspicious of industry in general um, and suspicious of new development. Um, before renewable energy and climate change, the conservation community really didn't have a lot of experience in supporting large development. 
And really, it was the opposite. Many of my colleagues have spent their career successfully protecting wildlife by fighting development. Uh, but it's it's been a real paradigm shift. Um, but these two communities in the last decade, and certainly in the last seven years that I've been doing this, have really come together. Um, and the conserva- conservation community now really gets it, um, that it's urgently important that if we want to conserve wildlife, um, we have to be supporting renewable energy development. And if folks didn't get that before, I think recent events in Australia really drove home that message. Um, For folks that don't know, um, Australia's average temperature in 2019 was up um, one and a half degrees Celsius from average. And so we really see what those temperature shifts can do for wildlife with those raging wildlife fires. but back to, to my, my daily work, again, I'm really driven, or our team is really driven twofold, um, helping wind build out in the pace and scale needed to mitigate climate change. And those numbers are really aggressive. Um, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, is now telling us that we need 80 to 90% um, of our electricity produced by renewable energy in the U.S. And last I checked, renewables were at about 10% of our electricity and wind was at six. So this is a rapid expansion in just a few decades. Um, And while we all know we need it for wildlife, uh, we can't lose sight that this is a tremendous amount of infrastructure development and it needs to happen quickly. Um, And sadly, we are also facing a biodiversity crisis in this country with over a million species at risk. And not just from climate change, but also from habitat destruction and over um, exploitation. Um, so all infrastructure, including renewable energy, has to be done right. Um, and we're fortunate in my work that it's really two sides of the same coin. Um, what's been interesting is there has been um, a rapid buildup of local opposition. Um, and sometimes wildlife is brought into that local opposition to wind energy development. And so we've been working a lot to make sure that wind energy is cited and that we're getting the facts out on what the real um, impacts are. So day to day, um, what does that look like? In the Obama administration, we were um, we were drowning in comment letters and rulemaking uh, as we all tried to build up a, a regulatory framework um, that has naturally shifted in recent years. Uh, the states have become some of our, our biggest leaders on climate change. So I find that I'm working a lot more with states on state policies. Um, but we're also working a lot directly with industry on voluntary efforts. Um, they are really have becoming a great leader on developing the new technology to reduce impacts, um, other best management practices, and we'll sometimes get involved with um, single projects when we can. So it's, it's pretty variable. So very different than uh, what my life looked like at the law firm. Yeah, sounds like it. And I guess drilling in further to wildlife interactions, I guess what, you know, for folks out there that like to hear about the critters and what sorts of wildlife are really at issue here, can you talk a little bit about the wildlife interaction concerns that you've really been focused on recently? Um, I would love to, Brooke, um, particularly because it relates to, um, to bats. And that's where my team probably spends the most of their time related to a um, to a single class of species. Uh, and the reason why I'm excited to talk about bats today is they're obviously having a rough go right now in the realm of public opinion. Um, I'm constantly having to tell my husband as we're um, educating our children that even in the midst of these times, 
uh, bats are incredibly important. There are pollinators, there are insect control, seed dispersal, and bats face a lot of threats. Um, and some quick bat biology, I didn't know before I took this job. Um, not all bats hibernate in caves. Um, there is a subset of bat species that migrate, kind of like birds. Um, but for whatever reason, these migrating species appear to be attracted to wind turbines during their fall migration when they're mating. And, and the crazy part is we're not sure why. Is it that insects are congregating around the turbines? Do they think these turbines are massive trees? Are they just curious? Um, we're not exactly sure. Uh, but we do know that uh, three species, all migratory species, constitute about three quarters of the 500,000 to million bat fatalities um, we see at wind turbines in this country each year. And we're particularly worried um, that one species um, in particular may be facing decline from these fatalities. And that is the hoary bat, which I know is not the greatest name. We're working on rebranding um, this bat to the sky lion. Because if you can, if I could show you a picture right now, um, this bat has a beautiful tuft of fur around its face that looks like a mane of hoarfrost, which is, which is where it gets its name. Um, but the hoary bat has a really broad geographic range across the country, and, and we see fatalities across the country. Um, and there's at least one published paper that suggests we can see really rapid declines to this bat species from wind alone in just the next 50 years. And all of the species I've worked on, this is the first species where we see wind energy as the dominating threat. Usually wind energy is one threat of many to a species. And while there's certainly other threats to the hoary bat, um, it seems like wind really dominates its risk picture, or at least of what we know about it right now. Um, what's also interesting about it is it's a migratory bat, not a migratory bird. So it currently doesn't have any regulatory protection. And this is a tough situation for a lot of reasons. Um, wind companies, if they don't have an obligation, um, they're busy right now just trying to stay in compliance with all of the other laws we've mentioned. Um, and um, at the same time, if this industry is driving this species down and we could see a listing in the next few decades, that would mean nearly every facility in the country would be out of compliance with the Endangered Species Act which would create a huge lift for the service, um, for the industry, and of course, for the bat. Um, but there is some, some silver lining. Um, we have a great relationship with the industry. And while it's hard for any industry to think proactively, particularly the wind industry when they're dealing with the boom and bust of the production tax credit um, and all of the other things they have on their plate, we have seen a lot of industry, uh, sorry, a lot of leadership emerge. Um, we see voluntary adoption right now of some of the deterrents we have out there. Um, and we also see a lot of um, innovation and industry uh, volunteering to, excuse me, to host research on their sites. Um, and so we continue to work with the industry and we're looking on some voluntary vehicles maybe for regulatory protection so we can get in front of this problem um, before it becomes one more uh, regulatory burden. And we have about a bat population, which will be hard to recover. Thanks, Joy. It's really interesting to hear that from your perspective. Um, as you noted, you know, so, one of the biggest challenges. Go ahead, Joy. I was just going to say, what are you seeing? But yes, continue. Yeah, no, I was going right there. 
Um, one of the biggest challenges, as you've noted, is that there's varying factors that go into making wind projects go, right? There's the tax incentives that are um, in various stages of phasing out or rumored to be phasing back in. There's, um, you know, power production agreements. There's interconnection considerations. There's, you know, federal lands considerations. There's landowner considerations. There's all sorts of things. And so typically, and I think more than most, the wind industry has been more proactive about getting ahead of some of the environmental considerations. But at the end of the day, the concerns that rise to the top are those that have an immediate um, repercussion in terms of exposure to enforcement risk, um, inability to demonstrate compliance with the law and those sorts of things. So it happens that while you're doing all this triage to determine where these wind projects should go, those species that are already receiving protections um, get more attention. I would say right now I'm working on over a dozen Endangered Species Act permits for wind energy facilities related to other bat species, not the hoary bat that you mentioned, but the Indiana bat, the northern long-eared bat, in some cases the gray bat, all of which are species that have wide ranges, so it impacts a lot of wind energy development and it impacts a lot of energy development and other development generally too by nature of the bats. Um, and so getting your arms wrapped around all of those considerations when developing and then adding in the uncertainty over species that don't yet have protections, but that may, um, may be protected under these laws over the lifetime of a project. These projects typically last 30 years. They're operating 30 years. They may be repowered at the end of that. They may be repowered um, even before that if technology dictates that it makes sense for a particular project. And there are several bat species already on the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's listing pipeline. So the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service administers the Endangered Species Act and species receive protection um, when the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service promulgates a rule that lists them as endangered or in some cases threatened if there's a special rule that dictates their protections. But at any rate, there's already two bats that are coming down the listing pipeline that may or may not be protected over the next few years, uh, the tricolored bat and the little brown bat. And both are very wide ranging. And so thinking through how to demonstrate compliance and plan for potential listings of species when you don't know which way they're going to go, um, but they may be something that impacts your project um, over the course of 30 years. I think that's really challenging. And then when you roll into it, these species that maybe aren't as far along in the listing process that you know may also factor in and trying to decide how to plan for those when the science is changing and when the um, knowledge about what may attract species, what may deter species, all of that. I think all of that, when you're a project planner, also trying to meet power production requirements and whatnot, um, it, it's a lot of, um, I guess work's not the right word, but it's a lot of managing uncertainty very carefully. And then when you add to that, you're also interfacing with stakeholders, landowners, community opposition, and then the federal and state resource agencies. Um, it's a lot of work to try to take all of those considerations into account when you're planning your project to make sure you're optimizing renewable power generation, but also um, championing your environmental stewardship and then also maintaining compliance with laws and all the other things that you have going on. And I guess with that, yeah. we'll talk a little bit about, um, you know, it seems that 
in a lot of news articles, um, environmental organizations criticize wind for wildlife impacts. You see a lot of news articles on that. But one thing that I think is notable, and I feel like this is somewhat indicative of the fact that you and I know each other so well that we agreed to do this together, is the fact that the wind energy industry and its stakeholders, um, there's really a sense of collaboration there. And one thing I wanted to note that nearly 10 years ago now, uh, stakeholders made up of the industry, the environmental organizations, the agencies, they worked together as part of a federal advisory committee to provide input to the Fish and Wildlife Service to develop the 2012 land-based wind energy guidelines that ultimately provide a framework to demonstrating siting efforts, particularly as they relate to assessing wildlife impacts. Um, and it's hard to believe that it's already 10 years old. And since then, there's been a number of other collaborative impacts. Um, so I wanted to talk to you because I know you're involved in, in many of these. Um, what would you say are some of the most successful or exciting recent efforts between organizations such as yours and the industry in tackling concerns with respect to wind turbine interactions and wildlife? Yeah, thanks, Brooke. And you're absolutely right. Um, this green versus green um, oppositional uh, frame really dominates. Um, and we have to do a better job of communicating all those successes because there has been a, a lot. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, we've really come a long way. Um, and one of the best efforts that's so easy to focus on is the success of the American Wind Wildlife Institute, uh, which I serve on the board of. And the board is equally divided with industry uh, and NGO representatives. And I wanted to highlight two um, relatively recent or recent as far as the last 10 years efforts on that part, on that point. Um, and the first is the American Wind Wildlife Information Center. And this is a database where wind companies can voluntarily and anonymously uh, contribute fatality data from their facilities. And interesting that fatality data comes straight from um, requirements under the voluntary wind energy guidelines you mentioned, Brooke. Um, and what's so amazing about this is, um, I, I know, Brooke, in, in your day-to-day -day job, and if I think back to my previous hat, uh, as a lawyer, I don't know if I would let wind companies release their data publicly, given the regulatory risks of that. Um, and so this database allows wind companies to contribute their data anonymously um, with protections. And now that data today, I think, captures about a third of all operating megawatts in this country, and maybe more now. I and mean, we're really seeing the power that that data provides um, when we can aggregate it and starting to understand trends and really what is the risk to wildlife. And AWWI has been doing a great job of, of publishing that. Uh, and relatedly also in just last year, um, the industry came out with a new wind wildlife research fund. Uh, the industry has a long history of supporting research but it's been hard for one company to bear um, the incredible cost of doing a research project to understand when wildlife interactions. Uh, and so this fund was born, it was um, completely driven by the industry to create it um, and now it's up and running. Uh, and we're now on the second year um, and second year of research. Uh, and we're seeing a lot of um, interesting preliminary results come out of that. And so stay tuned as we learn more. Um, and also related to both of these efforts has also just been um, a real drive in advancing new technology. Um, and we've been working together on opportunities um, to reduce wind and wildlife risk um, through technology, which has been a really 
exciting new horizon. Um, so, Brooke, I'd be interested too how your work relates to these new technologies and and the um, and the underlying regulatory component of that. Sure. So, technology is interesting because it's just fascinating to see how more and more data is gathered regarding how these species behave, and then what sorts of things can help create a kind of um, better cohabitation with respect to wind energy and the wildlife that they may impact. You know, for an Endangered Species Act permit or a permit under the Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act, um, intrinsic in both of those permit processes are a demonstration that you have taken measures to minimize impacts to a species. And so sometimes this new technology can give way to new methods to allow wind energy developers to minimize impacts as part of this permit process. And sometimes the technology is proving to be um, successful enough in certain circumstances. You know, everything's always governed by what's the ecology of your setting, what's the kind of, what are the geographical features and those sorts of things that can all affect how effective technology is. But in some cases, this technology can be used to avoid impacts altogether and therefore not have any impacts to listed species or feel confident enough that it's not likely and then continue to monitor to make sure that that's true. And so it's been really interesting to see how this technology has um, progressed to a point where it can start to be incorporated on these projects, either as an avoidance approach or as a minimization, minimization approach to be used in the permit process. I think one of the challenges with wildlife law generally and technology is that you can't always control where species go. They don't necessarily listen to you just because you think they're likely to go somewhere. That doesn't mean they're always paying attention to what you think. And I think some of that uncertainty also extends to how the technology is going to behave. And so I think, you know, the next big step in this technology is not only its development, but also getting more comfortable with how to predict its impacts on wildlife impacts, which is a little bit redundant use of impacts. But in other words, you know, the Fish and Wildlife Service, they're looking at the impacts of the species and they're looking at new technology and how that might factor in. And as this technology develops, there's also um, a learning curve with respect to the agencies in terms of their comfort with how this technology actually can improve and avoid or minimize impacts to wildlife getting them to feel comfortable saying, yeah, we see that this technology is going to minimize impacts and therefore we can consider that a minimization measure or we can diminish your take estimates, which is you know your, your estimates of your impact to the species by this amount because you're employing X technology. And so to me, that's where it's really going is getting everyone comfortable with what this technology can do to actually allow it to factor into these permit processes and things, um, I guess, more specifically. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And something we've been working a lot um, from the conservation side is we realize there's a lot of risk to deploying these. Um, and it's, it's hard for a wind facility always to uptake a new technology that's uncertain, that you're not exactly sure what your return on investment will be. Um, so we've been working with Fish and Wildlife Service directly on trying to identify some innovative policies um, so facilities can get some credit, if you will, um, to help make it work more with the economics of a wind project and also advance the technology itself by um, by learning by doing so. Yeah, thanks for saying that, because that is another piece of it. You know, these companies are eager to see technology help these processes, but if 
the agencies are still working on becoming comfortable with using it, there is this question of, well, am I going to spend all this money on this thing that we think works, but the folks that are actually enforcing the laws may not be comfortable with yet? There starts to be a tension there that goes back to the whole, all the factors that have to factor into project planning and siting and project economics. So I guess one last thing I wanted to touch on before we sign off is that there's been a number of big legal developments over the past year and that we're expecting, um, I guess, over the latter half of 2019 and throughout 2020 that affect wind energy and wildlife. Um, you know, on my list are the bat listings that I mentioned earlier. There's several bat listings that may come down. Most recently, the District Court of D.C. Uh, remanded a listing decision on the northern long-eared bat um, back to the Fish and Wildlife Service, and they just recently filed a notice of appeal. Um, we anticipate that there's going to be amendments to the Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act permit program uh, sometime in 2021. Um, most recently, the Fish and Wildlife Service also issued a proposed rule um, dictating what is and what is not prohibited with respect to the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And then as many have seen in the news, there's also been um, the amendments to the National Environmental Policy Act that were issued by the Council of Environmental Quality that came out in proposed form and that comment period just ended as well. And so a lot of these legal developments can affect wind energy development. It will affect development across the board, but particularly have an impact to wind energy development. Um, are there any in particular that you think are the biggest ones to watch in these coming months, um, coming months, coming years that would affect wind energy and wildlife interactions? I'm not sure if I will we'll pick one in particular because it is such a fast moving world, as you mentioned, and there is a lot going on. Um, I think the biggest theme, though, from all of the uh, um, the issues going on right now, is all of the work that is that is being done. How do we make this so we can improve wildlife permitting for wind energy? And I'm not suggesting that the list you rattled off, the objective um, of those efforts, is that. But I think as two practitioners working on this intersection, they do create a lot of opportunity for us. Um, an important benefit of wind that we've touched a little bit about, or you did, is unlike fossil fuel burning power plants, these wind facilities, they don't need air permits for operating, they don't need wastewater permits, and they need limited, usually Clean Water Act um, general permits. And so a wind facility's impacts really focus on wildlife. But the wildlife statutes that we've been talking about today like the Migratory Bird, or like the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which makes, which dates back to 1918, or the Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act that was enacted in 1940, they're really different than the um, Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. And because of the unique impacts we talked about earlier for wind facilities, is they weren't set up with the thought of um, operating wind facilities, operating wind facilities. Um, but we're fortunate, too, at the same time that these statutes do allow um, a lot of opportunities for us to create permitting programs that do allow them to be set up. And so um, if we think back, do we need this rapid expansion of wind energy um, in the next 
three decades, we need to find opportunities and pragmatic approaches that we can be more efficient in issuing permits in a lawful way that's protective of wildlife, um, particularly as you rattled off that the list of things that we're all working on right now. Um, and as we see more and more imperiled species um, need protection. Um, and we really can do it without taking unnecessary shortcuts that would jeopardize these really critical landmark environmental laws um, that were set up for a reason and that we still need to protect wildlife. Um, and I think it's really this false narrative we, we hear all the time that um, environmental compliance has to prevent timely and industrial build out. Because um, I think the environmental community has proven time and, attend, time, and time again that if we, if we want to do it, we can. Um, and I think on the flip side, when we think about all these regulatory implications, um, it can be hard to forget that really the path to conservation is through permits. Um, once, if wind facilities can get permits, which a lot of them are trying hard to do, then we get obligations for conservation and we get obligation, legal obligations for minimization. Um, so some of the opportunities from a broad scale, um, legal perspective where we can, we can start to streamline these. Um, you mentioned Fish and Wildlife Now is working on a rulemaking for eagle permitting. Um, and we started a collaborative effort, um, defenders working with Natural Resource Defense Council and Audubon um, with the American Wind Energy Association to create some joint recommendations to Fish and Wildlife Service and how we can improve eagle permitting. And, and Brooke, I'll certainly be getting your advice on, along the way. You mentioned the Migratory Bird Protection Act um, and, that, and the recent rulemaking that's going on there. Um, at the same time, uh, the conservation community is working on the Hill on um, legislation. Can we get a general permitting program going, similar to the Clean Water Act general permitting program, um, so we can protect migratory birds um, while allowing the industry to continue? Um, and I know the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is working on um, certain efforts under the Endangered Species Act for low-effect habitat conservation plans and bats, and there's a programmatic efficient nature to that. Um, and so I'm hopeful, even if we are seeing more listings, that we can find reasonable ways to protect these species um, while still achieving the build out to the industry that we need. Um, so I have a lot of hope um, and overwhelm. I share your feelings of being overwhelmed with all the regulatory activity, but I do think from the industry perspective and from clients perspective, you know, uncertainty is one of the harder things to manage around. And that's whether it's uncertainty in the permit process, whether that's inconsistent application from one agency office to another, whether it's the regulatory status of something being uncertain. And I think having processes that work that get you from point A to point B while achieving conservation and allowing wind energy development to continue are really key. So I'm hopeful that over the course of these next few years, um, these processes and regulations shift in ways that allow for that to be more readily accessible and, and better for project planning, wind energy development, wildlife conservation, all of the things. And I think with that, Joy, I really wanted to thank you for joining me on this podcast. I was excited whenever we had this opportunity and thought it would be a perfect opportunity for you and I to chat about the things that take up so much of our time. So thank you so much. Yeah, this was fun because who knows when I'll see you again in person. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org.
And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.